Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Imagine retroactively doing the elevator pitch for Big Little Lies. It's a delicious, irony-dripping satire of upper-class mores in Monterey that also hinges on a terrible rape and acts of domestic violence. How's that going to work? Well, somehow or other it does. Such a success in its first season, it was intended to be a kind of closed-off miniseries, that there is an unexpected second season. We'll talk about that today with the hosts of a podcast about Big Little Lies. They all happen to be nose panelists, too, which means they're equipped to talk about Lil Nas X coming out and the arrival in our midst of a black Ariel, the Little Mermaid. All coming up after the news. Welcome, welcome. We're live here on Friday. If you're listening at one o'clock, we're right here in the studio. Well, you're probably doing something very weekend holiday-ish. Uh, but today on the show, Big Little Lies on HBO was originally planned as a one-off, a miniseries with a beginning and an end, with a group of A-list actors playing, in many cases, wine moms from hell, the type of overprivileged West Coast mothers recently made flesh by Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin in the real-life college admission scandal. Big Little Lies was so popular that it didn't end. Instead, it's back with uh, the most A-list actress of them all, Meryl Streep, as a new addition. Our panelists today now host their own Big Little Lies podcast. But before we get to all that, we have two other topics to tackle. And before we get to those, let me introduce those panelists. Rebecca Castellani is director of venue operations and tour marketing for We Save Music. Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, dancer, filmmaker. I, I'll just be here all day. Um, and choreographer and director and founder of Kinetic Dance. Teresa Kramer is a writer and the editor of eContent magazine. So before we get to Big Little Lies, we've got a couple of other topics uh, coming up here. Uh, the first has to do with the casting of Halle Bailey, an African-American uh, actress, as Ariel, the Little Mermaid, in a live-action version, Disney's live-action version of the Little Mermaid. Uh, the 19-year-old's casting was announced on Wednesday uh, with Bailey, half of the sister-singing duo. See, I don't know anything about this. Uh, <laughs> is it Chloe Timesdale? Chloe X Daily? Chloe Tenstein? You're the youngest person I, here. I, I'm looking I think it's X. I think All right. it's X. Okay. Uh, confirming herself on Twitter, dream come true. Uh, but there were some people who don't like it. Uh, some people who think that the Little Mermaid, she was white, she should still be white, and that's just the way uh, mermaids are. And uh, I mean, I don't know that we can have a really robust discussion of this because we would need to have differing points of view about it. Uh, but uh, let's give this a try anyway. I mean, Carolyn, there is a sense in which there's a I thought this was a made up controversy at first. I thought there were going to be like six people who felt this way and then thousands of people making really funny memes about it, which is the case, uh, to, to make fun of the people who have a problem with the race of the a Little Mermaid. But I, I don't know. I started like I did hashtag blackface on Twitter. There's a lot of uh, blackwash. I'm sorry. Hashtag blackwash <laughs> on Twitter. And, and, um, and they're really 
there are a lot of really wacky people who think everybody should stay in their racial lanes. Yeah, I saw some pretty offensive stuff. I, for me, the the thing that kind of shocked me about the casting for Little Mermaid was that she wasn't a redhead. Obviously, like that is that's you have a you know an I, axe to grind. There. Yeah, I I, I just kind of always think of her because uh, for me, growing up. When Little Mermaid came out, I was quite young, but I was just so smitten by that movie uh, because the Little Mermaid kind of looked like me. So I I loved that. But that being said, like, I, I am totally open to a different version of the Little Mermaid. And I think if they're going, if Disney is going to be taking their animated classics and turning them into live action, I think you kind of have to go a different Route. Like, I was completely and utterly bored by their Beauty and the Beast that basically just took the cartoon and turned it into real life. Right. Um, what you're describing is mermaid intersectionality. You're <laughs> able to accommodate, you know, a bunch of com- possibly competing needs, including your own group, right? Yes. Is, is that what intersectionality is? I think it might be. Sure. Um, let's go with that. Yeah. But yes, I am willing to accept a, as a redhead, I am willing to accept a non-redhead mermaid. Yeah. I don't know, Teresa, what do, you, what do you make of this? I mean, is this, I, I sort of thought, oh, this is just the Gamergate people, or and I'm still not convinced that this is anything other than this deeply marginalized little group of internet soreheads, but I don't know whether there's any, you know, but on the other hand, it gives everybody a chance to get very creative about dissing them. Well, I mean, I'm never really surprised at the amount of stupid people we don't know are out there until the sort this sort of thing comes up, mm-hmm. right? Like, this happens every, you know, six months or so, something like this happens, and every... And, you know, this is what happens when you give a platform to, like, everybody's stupidest cousin, right? <laughs> and then they just go out there and start spewing their hatred everywhere and then try to pretend there's some scientific reason that a mermaid needs to be white. And if we're going to get, you know, very persnickety about this, legend has it that sailors actually were mistaking manatees for mermaids. So, you know, if we're going to try and go back to some scientific basis for what this mermaid needs to look like, I think Mm. it needs to be played by a manatee. That would be the weirdest little mermaid ever, and I'm here for (laughs) it. Just put a wig on one. I think a ginger manatee. (laughs) I'm here for it. (laughs) I I, I was sort of impressed by the outpouring. There's a lot of creativity when these things come up. I mean, not on the part of the soreheads, but... Right. For example, Rebecca, what is the I don't know what's the meme called of the guy who's walking with his girlfriend but yes. looking back. Distracted at, boyfriend meme. Distracted boyfriend meme. Yes. So the distract did you see one? Yes. There's it a was distracted boyfriend. Tiana meme. was the yeah. subject of distraction and it was Eric leaning over his shoulder with Ariel looking aghast. Done with the dolls. Done with the Barbie dolls. Yeah. And it was everything. Right. I, I knew that I knew that Rebecca would be able to decode that whole thing entirely for me. Yeah, I'm sitting go. here going, "What's the thing called where the guy's looking at?" Uh, it's like an episode of Reply All, all of a sudden. Right. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I, I would also agree with you, Carolyn, that you know Disney's repurposing all this stuff for live action. I mean, everything is going to be live action, and I mean, they did something. I I didn't. After Dumbo, I quit. But um, 
quite. Uh, <laughs> but Will Smith was the genie and stuff like that. So there's probably, I mean, that's a direction you can go in. And in a way, what you can do is bring a kind of aesthetic and a kind of style into the Disney canon that never was there before. I mean, the problem with Dumbo was that it had these, in, in, in its animation version, these kind of entertaining but unbelievably raci- racist stereotype crows. So you've got to get rid of the crows. And Disney, you know, they haven't really done the black aesthetic that much outside of the sphere of minstrelsy, you know. But now, if you're going to live action this stuff, then, yeah, you find out maybe what Will Smith can do as um, – you know, as the genie, and maybe you can find out what uh, what this young woman can do with Ariel. Yeah, I think it's just about pushing the boundaries and changing the way that we are are looking at things. I I just think it makes it more interesting at this point. We don't we don't need a new Little Mermaid. I think arguably that is a great that animated movie is a an amazingly well done classic animated film. So since minus we don't, all the daddy issues. <laughs> Fair, yeah, and, and a woman giving up yeah. everything about giving herself up her for, voice a man for a man that whatever. she doesn't know. Totally sure. unproblematic. <laughs> Definitely but watch it with your young children. Putting all that aside, <laughs> the musical number of, you know, <laughs> musical numbers are great and all of that. So we don't need a new one. So what they bring to this is it, it has to be something worth us feeling like, okay, I'll buy a ticket and go see it. I mean, if they want to balance things out, maybe they can have uh, Benedict Cumberbatch be Sebastian or something, right? Because like, oh, the, now we're talking. Because the crab was West Indian in the original uh, mm-hmm. version. I hope people She's just gonna get West London now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just sort of thinking like how, how you. Yeah, I am wondering yeah. how how they're so they're gonna do like I guess CGI. And has Melissa crabs. McCarthy been cast as Ursula? Is that I have confirmed? heard rumblings yes. about that. Yes. Oh, that I is was really official. hoping for a drag queen. I know there's a couple great yeah. drag queens that do Ursula, and I was really <laughs> hoping we were going to get like Darian Lake as Ursula. Ooh. Although Melissa McCarthy could be really good. So. Yeah, she'll, um, she'll be great. So, I mean, just in case you thought that uh, Teresa, I think it was Teresa, w- it was kidding about this. There are people on the Twitters uh, saying things like, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it physically impossible for Ariel to be black? She lives underwater. How would the sun get to her to produce melanin? Has nobody thought this through? Because, like, the science of The Little Mermaid is otherwise pretty watertight, right? so perfect. Right? Oh, yeah. I see what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, really, the, you know, ordinarily they stick pretty closely to, except for, like, talking crabs and, th- you know. Talking fish. And talking singing fish. Right. fish. <laughs> uh, but other than that. All right. Well, we have to sort of shift gears. Is there anything left to say about this? I mean, it, it's not a good discussion topic because, I mean, the people who are complaining about it are idiots and none of us is prepared to defend them so nor should we be um so uh, maybe we should move on uh but yes there is a hashtag not my ariel it's now completely dominated by people who are making fun of the not my ariel movement uh i I was going to say if if you want to meet the really horrible people who started all this try hashtag blackwash and you will see that um so meanwhile the person who is clearly going to musically dominate the summer, despite the fact that a week ago I was trying to make a case that Billie Eilish was going to have the song of the summer. But there's sort of really no question about this, that, that Lil Nas X has got the song of the summer with Old Town Road. Uh, he is like the musical person of the summer, I think, probably. Uh, however much I might like, might like Billie Eilish as Batman's crazy ex-girlfriend, which is what I'm convinced she is. Uh, but uh, Lil Nas X has even more surprises for us besides the fact that he can make... Uh, an authentic country hip-hop hit. And uh, one of those surprises uh, did come up uh, unnoticed for the most part uh, in uh, this song. 
Another, uh, we'll talk about that song that's uh, called Closure, but another tip off might have been Old Town Road, Stephen Sondheim remix. Um, <laughs> and uh, so it turns out, and it turns out there's quite a few clues in there to his sexual orientation. A lot of people didn't get them, so he just tweeted it. Um, uh, you know, just make it all clear here. Uh, and in a way that has some kind of kinship uh, to the black Ariel, the not my Ariel uh, mini controversy. There's some people who can't handle that either. But um, so, uh, Rebecca, I'm going to start off with you because I, I know you're you're very much into Little Nas X this summer. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I really didn't want to be into Little Nas X. <laughs> like, I didn't go into this. The first time I hold, heard Old Town Road, I'm like, yeah, it's kind of a jam. But the more I've heard it and the more I've interacted with Lil Nas X in his social mediums, I just really have fallen in love with him. He is very self-deprecating and self-aware in a way that you don't typically see a lot of artists there was a period of time where all he tweeted about was like, I'm the guy that wrote Old Town Road and I'm going to do 50 million remixes of this. This is the only thing I'm ever going to put out. And I just like thought he was so endearing. So then when he came out and there was, you know, of course, because we can't have nice things in America ever. There was, you know, the backlash associated with that. A lot of people saying, I'm never going to listen to his music anymore and blah, blah, blah. And the way he's just responded to it. He just takes all these comments that could be so hurtful. And I'm sure it caused him an enormous amount of hurt. I mean, he has gotten serious about it a couple of times, but he's just able to, you know, someone said, oh, are you, why are you gay? Are you going to be gay forever? And he's like, only on weekends. Yeah. He's just funny. Like, he's got a really great sense of humor, and I don't think he's letting fame, he's not taking fame so seriously, which is refreshing. And so, I, yeah, I'm here for a little Nas X moment. Just to stay with you on this for a second, also, there's a way in which, I mean, I think a lot, of, I don't know, I don't think Frank Ocean would have stayed in quite as long a dialogue with people trolls. about this or trolls no. and stuff like that. In fact, you know, good luck finding Frank Ocean, never mind yeah. getting into a big <laughs> argument. With him. But, um, but there's a way in which because there, there's there's sort of a maker uh, culture quality to Lil Nas X, yep. right? He kind of created himself. He created this, yep. all of this out of nothing. Then TikTok uh, wound up being, you know, one of the places that that really promoted this in a way that no record company possibly could. As yep. you get people making their own videos to old, to Old Town Road, there's a way in which he still has both feet in the culture of the people who, who consume work yes. because he's not that far from where they are right now. No, he. I mean, Billie Eilish is actually a good comparison. 
because the two of them kind of occupy that Gen Z, like, I'm not going to sell out to the record label. I'm going to engage in that Gen Z sarcastic, I'm not going to take this too seriously kind of way versus even the millennials get really sensitive about a lot of stuff like this and Mm. don't come for me. We need inclusivity. And, you know, Billie Eilish and Lil Nas X are just kind of throwing that right back in the face and trolling the trolls back, which, you know, is a pretty effective way of shutting down a trolls if you just turn whatever they've trolled you with into a biting punchline for your joke. I Mm -hmm. mean, he, he's definitely got that self-awareness and that self-deprecation and that good-natured humor that you just don't see a ton of. And I feel that same way. Billie Eilish is a, definitely a darker version of that, but she's still hyper-aware and dealing with her trolls in a very upfront, personal way. And you don't get the sense that either of them have like a publicist that's writing for them. <laughs> like I get the sense that Lil Nas X is at his phone responding to these people. It, it is pretty clear mm-hmm. that that's happening. So I don't know, Carolyn, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that here in 2019, there are there's still back and forth about this stuff that it matters to anybody, you know, what this guy's sexual orientation is, that people who have embraced his music suddenly want to kind of de-embrace him. Well, so I guess the big thing, you don't see a lot of openly gay country artists or rap artists. You don't see a lot of country artists that are rappers right. to begin yeah. with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, right there, like, the, he he's kind of in his own category. And when Old Town Road came out, I, I love this song. I, I definitely think it's like the jam of the summer. Oh, and, definitely. Um, Might be the jam of the year. Yeah. And I, have you seen the video for yes. it? Yes. I think this video is one of the best videos to come out. Um, and, I mean, it has everything. It has hip-hop dancing. It has humor, like really well-done humor. And, and Billy Ray Cyrus. Billy Ray Cyrus and country line dancing and, uh, you know, horses strolling through city streets. I mean, it horses is— Horses in the back. Right. But he's, oh. but he's also working kind of in two genres that are, are a little late to the party in terms of acceptance, Exactly. Right? That's what I'm saying. This video kind of, like, steps up and enters— the, these genres into today, like in this really cool way, in this very, like you said, this kind of like self-aware, very like social media hip. Uh, it, I just, I thought it was brilliant. I think the song is brilliant. And uh, I, I mean, I was kind of shocked when, when you know, there was all this like backlash to him coming out because I, it shouldn't I, be. A I, I guess item. I just naively thought we were past that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I but, know. But, but I, uh, you know, Teresa, I think sometimes it is the subcultures that aren't past that. So hip yeah. hop hop's in the middle of an evolution. And that's certainly, why I had to yeah come um, to terms with that. I mean, certainly uh, for a long time, the you know the other f word was slung around in all kinds of hip hop lyrics mm-hmm. by all, all kinds of hip hop right. artists uh, with very little remorse uh, about that. And gay country artists, I mean, there probably are some. I can't name them right now. Go ahead and tweet us at WNPR Colin. I have no idea. Maybe there are gay. Are there gay country artists? There must Brandi be. Brandi Carlisle's kind of country she, sometimes. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> I, I didn't even know she's gay. So, um, okay, that's a good example. I think she's she counts. Um, but you know, Teresa, there's a way in which even though mainstream culture. I think has really forged ahead here, and this is less and less of an issue to anybody who's not like you know at Mike Pence's Fourth of July party. Uh, <laughs> but but there are ways, subcultures don't artistic subcultures. They take their time, and and they are not necessarily marching in step with everybody else. And it's not just artistic subcultures because I mean. You know, we have a way of forgetting about um, we talk about intersectionality a lot, but we tend to talk about that in terms of like 
the people in cities, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so if you went to a small town in Georgia or Alabama where the people were not mostly white, they would probably hold very similar conservative views to the white people who live there, right? And we tend not to think about that. And that still is a lot of the country that we spend a lot of time in our little NPR bubble talking about intersectionality in a way that I don't think we and sort of forcing the sort of narrative around people not necessarily accepting gay people or black Ariel, and we assume they're always white. Mm-hmm. And it's not always true. And the hip hop genre has struggled with that for a long time, specifically. I don't follow country music that closely, except for the Brandy Carlisles of the world. But um, but I grew up on hip hop. I love hip hop. And I always had gay friends at the same time. And I've always struggled with how that those two things came together. And I'm glad we're finally moving beyond that a little bit. Although I think it's still going to take some time, as we can see from the reaction to Lil Nas X. Right. And I think, I mean, the aforementioned Mr. Frank Ocean, you know, I mean, even within his close community, uh, close Mm -hmm. creative community, when he first came out, uh, not everybody was, I think Tyler, the creator might have initially had some problems uh, and and then kind of reversed himself. Uh, I mean, in and a he, way, he he was the Ellen DeGeneres yes, uh, of yeah. hip hop, mm-hmm. and he wrote a lot of like very poignant, meaningful songs reflecting on that journey to come out. And mm-hmm. I think Lil Nas X has done it in just a kind of like, yep, this is who I am. Well, and Are, I you're surprised? I thought I made it obvious. Yeah. He, his dropping of the clues, like his album cover, that artwork has yeah. like the mm-hmm. has the rainbow on it and everything. I don't know if you mm-hmm. saw he that. Seems- read about that. He almost seems kind of annoyed that he had to right, come right. Out. Mm-hmm. And which I like, really appreciate. Like, why, why don't y'all just get this? Like, and why I, do I, I even have made to? It easier yeah, this a deal. <laughs> like, this is just who I am, and I think that that's really important, especially you know, look at like the way Moonlight treated you know young black homosexuality. I mean, it that is a very important stance to take. Yeah, this is not a big deal. This shouldn't have to be a yeah. huge coming out moment greeted with all this fanfare. And unfortunately, it's kind of become that because people again can't have nice things. But just let the man live. Right. No, I, I, it was kind of funny. You could almost kind of sense him on social media heaving this sigh of impatience, you know, kind of having to do this Dan Brown Da Vinci code. Yeah. Okay, look at the rainbow. There. Yeah. What do you think the rainbow, man? Let's look dissect the, the lyrics. But look he said lyric, in an interview, yeah. I think just recently, maybe today or yesterday, he was on BBC and said that he actually considered just never coming out at one yeah. point, which mm-hmm. I, I get, and it's just so heartbreaking. So I wonder if all of his... All of these like teasers that he it was like him was putting out feelers. Yeah, yeah, he was testing the waters and seeing if people would start to pick up on it and kind of make his job easier. Well, now by... the Da Vinci Code thing has kind of gone the other way because he's got people being like, "It's Old Town Road about you know ride till you can't no more," and he's like, "It's <laughs> literally about horses." That was something yeah. he tweeted. I just love him. Yeah. Um, well, I and mean, when you say that he actually considered this, I mean, life has been moving pretty fast for a little Nas. Yeah. I mean, if you go back to January, we didn't know who he was. No. He now is by far he's got the most popular song in a very, very long time. Uh, it's a good time to do something where you have to, where people have to kind of buy into it because people have to buy into what Lil Nas wants to do right now. Lil Nas X. Lil Nas's world. We're yeah. just living in and it. That's good. <laughs> and that's fine. All and right. I'm happy to be here. All right. Uh, as long as Billie Eilish can occasionally like Oh, can, can have us collab? on weekends. That could be a very good collaboration. Oh. All right. So we're going to take a little break so we'll have time uh, to talk about the great passion of our three guests. I should say, if uh, Teresa sounds a little different from everybody else, that's because she's joining us on Skype from, I presume, Vermont. Are you in Vermont now? 
Where are no, you? I'm no. in out in Woodstock, Connecticut, Woodstock, which is Connecticut. even more remote than Vermont. All right, um, <laughs> that's not really true, but um, <laughs> but we'll go with it. She's we'll take from a, Monterey. We'll take a little break and we'll come back. I don't know what song this is, uh, but anyway, we're back. We're back to talk about. I think we were supposed to open with that, like sort of weird kind of ooh um, song that begins, which is apparently called "Cold Little Heart." I didn't know that either. Uh, which begins every episode of Big Little Lies. So Big Little Lies started uh, in 2017, right? 2017. Correct. Uh, a- as a closed-off, putatively closed-off miniseries, beginning and an end, and that was going to be that. Except that it was unbelievably popular for those of you who were living in Antarctica during that time. Uh, the series stars a bunch of A-list performers like Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman. Uh, Laura Dern, Zoe Kravitz, Shailene Woodley, um, and uh, they play the Monterey Five, as they are now known. Uh, they uh, live in great splendor and privilege, except for Shailene Woodley's character, uh, in beautiful Monterey, uh, in houses that often seem to isolate them from the actual physical beauty uh, of Monterey. Uh, and that's the beginning of many, many metaphors about their lives. Uh, I, I, mini spoiler, if you didn't see season one, uh, it ends with a death. It ends with the death of uh, a villainous character. It, uh, the series at that point has become embroiled in stories of domestic violence, depictions of domestic violence in a way that you typically don't see it uh, on screen uh, and rape. Uh, and at the end of the series, we see all five of the major characters sitting together on the beach, kind of sitting with where they've come to. It really does seem as though this story has now ended. Uh, and, and now it's begun again because it was too popular to stop. And then, Well, first of all, Teresa, uh, we mm-hmm. should say that all, all of you guys, uh, are, the three of you uh, host uh, this podcast, a big, little, a big Little Podcast. Do we know exactly why there is a season two? I mean, is it just a, some confluence of popularity? And, and creative drive. Has anybody explained why they changed their minds? I don't think anyone's totally explained their minds. From what we understand, you know, Leanne Moriarty, who wrote the book, the series is based on, agreed to write a second season. I assume they had fun doing it and it made a lot of money. And therefore, they were given a chance to do a second season. And Leanne Moriarty wrote that season, or at least sketched it out and created this character that she apparently insisted Meryl Streep play, and Meryl Streep was such a fan of the show that she was like, yeah, that's fine, I'll do it. Right. I mean, at least Mm -hmm. in The New Yorker, I read that Meryl Streep had already declared an interest in being uh, on the Mm -hmm. show and that she barely looked at the script before accepting it. She didn't care whatever it was she would do it. So that character is named Mary Louise Wright. Uh, Once again, we're going to be a little spoilery about the first season. I don't know how we can possibly avoid doing that. She she is the mother uh, of a character who who died at the end of the first season. She wants to know more about why that happened and what these uh, five uh, wine moms have to do with all that. Uh, and so let's hear a little bit from this. This, this is Mary Louise, played by uh, Meryl Streep, who's 
birth name, by the way, is Mary Louise uh, in real life. Uh, and she is talking to uh, Madeline, played by Reese Witherspoon. He's kind of the ringleader of this group of women. How have you been? Good, good. The kids are good. How are you? I can't complain. Actually, I can. My son is dead. But Celeste tells me that you continue to be so helpful with her and the boys, and... She should just get a proper housekeeper. You're very short. <laughs> Excuse me? I don't mean it in a negative way. Oh. Maybe I do. I find little people to be untrustworthy. <laughs> My apologies. It's just that I'm... I pride myself on being a very good judge of character, but you have always presented such a difficult read. You know, you seem like a nice person, loving, but also you strike me as a wanter. A, a wanter. Mm. You know, there are people in, in life who content themselves with what they have, and then there are others who just, just want. I'm not a wanter. Oh, you don't have to take it personally. Anyway, I'm a wanter myself. You know what I want? I want Harry back. I want to know what happened that night, and I, I'm very tempted to ask you, but I doubt I would get the, uh, the truth, would I? Your son lost his balance, and he fell. Yes, that seems to be the company line. By the way, uh, we are live here on Friday afternoon. If you're listening and you're a fan of Big Little Lies and you want to call in or you want to find out more about the podcast uh, or become one of its angry commenters, uh, you can call us at <laughs> 860-275-7266. We have a whole kit that enables you to become an angry, angry commenter on the podcast immediately, <laughs> so we mail it right out to you. 860-275-7266. You know, Carolyn, before we even get into the nature of this character, this really, I think, kind of an unusual and almost Dickensian character uh, played by... A Meryl Streep. Something needs to be said. I mean, the one, the one thing you can't see, obviously, in this clip is the acting that's going on. And the acting is like, you know, ranges from these dental prostheses that she's wearing that give her this odd overbite to, for example, when she says, I can't complain. She's at this, be they're at this beautiful outdoor Monterey coffee bar. She brings the cup of coffee up to her lips. But before she drinks it, she goes, but yes, I can you know, and, and that's very much how she does this all the way through. She's like a blob of jello that keeps attacking you, and then when you try to attack it back, it, it squirts away in some other direction. Uh, but Streep, <laughs> Streep is kind of doing that physically all the time, too, kind of starting one set of physical gestures and then reversing herself. Yeah, her performance, I mean— you're never disappointed by Meryl Streep, but I think she's like outdoing herself here in a lot of ways. There's this in uh, I think it's the second episode of the season. She's wearing a necklace with a cross on it. And I, I was I said that it, she does more acting with this necklace than most actors do in their entire careers. It is crazy how she has embodied this incredibly creepy woman at, who also is so good at like kind of coming across in such a it's like this like smooth creep in that she does um and 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 just makes everyone around her uncomfortable uh i i i love i love what she's brought to the show and i think that arguably this season would have really struggled to find itself if her character wasn't introduced and she wasn't there. Yeah, I mean, Rebecca, I, I, I don't, I mean, I said this in the first episode, the first time we talked about Big Little Lies after the first season, 
I don't like any of these people very much anyway, so I wouldn't have been up for another season of watching them. Um, and, and But Streep is so disruptive and seems to have arrived not simply from another generation, not from another city. She allegedly uh, lives in San Francisco, this character, uh, but from a different universe. I mean, she really is from a completely different place. Socioeconomically, you know, she's probably not that far down below these women, but, you know, a few rungs down. That's not it, though. She She's politically and generationally from another universe. Oh, definitely. And we've talked on the show quite a bit about, you know, how the show does a great job of illustrating different types of feminism. And you kind of have the older characters like Madeline and Celeste, played by Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman, respectively, kind of embodying a different sense of morals than Jane and Bonnie, played by Shailene Woodley and Zoe Kravitz, respectively, who, you know, are kind of what do you mean? Like, that's crazy. We, we don't go along with, you know, violence against women and things like that. There's no women asking for it. And Mary Louise comes in and kind of gives us this complete other side of it where she's really coming from a position of aggression, but in a grandma-y way. Like, it's she's very, like, cloaked in the aggression except for, like, these bursts of violence. And her son, Perry, we've seen only really as – a very violent figure that can then put on a mask, but that's just to conceal the violence. Mary Louise seems to like slip into violence in a way that is almost more terrifying than Perry. I mean, I think to the first episode of the season, she lets out this carnal scream. Well, actually, why don't we do that for you, actually? Because <laughs> to me, th- this will get us into one of the real questions I have about the kind of the dualities in this series. So, yes. Yeah, so, n- so now we're going to go to, uh, let me see if I can mentally recreate this. Uh, they're all uh, having dinner together. And by I mean they, I mean Nicole Kidman's character, Celeste, uh, and her twin sons, uh, the sons uh, of this violent man, uh, and their grandmother, uh, Mary Louise. Uh, and, um, well, let's let the clip unfold there. You know, the other day, I was with some friends, and um, their sons were not a patch on your dad. Not a patch. Just, I felt so angry. Angry! You know, that they're mediocre, second-rate, pudgy, balding, middle-management sons. Still alive. And my Perry. My Perry. I just, I I just wanted to scream. So you know what I did? What? I did scream. Want to hear? Okay. Mary Louise! Mary Louise! Please, please. What? My grief is too loud for you. Oh, oh just, Celeste. Just I should be the more boys. discreet. We should scream. We should scream and beat our breasts and and tear our hair. Don't you feel angry? You don't? See, no, Teresa, first of all, this is an amazing scene. And, and I, I, I don't love every single thing that Meryl, Meryl Streep does. I'm sort of more in the kind of, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a total street worshiper. But this is something, it was a remarkable thing that she did there. Um, mm-hmm. and, and she managed to knit together for a moment what I see as these competing dualities on this show. And I want to get all three of you to react to this. But, I mean, you know, if you w- went to do an elevator pitch and said, yeah, we want to do this really delicious social satire uh, that'll have a lot of laughs in it, but it's also going to be about incredible acts of domestic violence and rape. 
You know, mm-hmm. that would be like it's a hard thing to wrap your mind around, and it's hard. To, it's a hard thing to believe can work together. And to me, in that scream, which she immediately follows by this little laugh, she bursts into laughter and she says, "Is my grief too loud for you?" or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and the scream is really kind of funny at that moment and completely unsettling and terrifying. Um, and and to me, this is the moment where the series kind of comes together. Those two things. But I was wondering if you've, you know, there's a kind of question about how to watch this series because the temptation is to drink some wine the way they're drinking some wine and laugh at their incredible excesses. But there's just a lot of stuff here that can't possibly be funny. Yeah, I mean, I I don't really struggle with that, honestly. I can, you know, I think a lot of people would call this soapy and I, I wouldn't, maybe for the second season I would agree, but definitely not for the first season. Um, you know, this is, I think there was an incredible realism to the first season, despite the setting, you know, and I think the setting sort of drives home that these things can happen anywhere, but this is, it's a show that's about the realities of people's lives and no one is, no one is just sad all the time or people are not just even people in abusive relationships have friends who make them laugh and who have silly sort of insignificant problems in comparison to their own. And, and then there's the Renata character who's so big and over the top that she's just almost pure camp most of the time, even though she's now dealing with very real financial issues. Um, but that's how real people are. And so I, I don't really struggle with that in either way. I think that's just real life. Hmm. Anybody else want to react here? No, the characters are always portrayed at surface value as very black and white. And Mm -hmm. yet, like, more and more as the series progresses, we're given, you know, privilege to the gray. And I think that that's what makes the show so strong. I mean, the first season really kind of set itself up as to women reacting against the violence of men. And, you know, that felt like a complete thought. And I kind of was worried going into season two how they were going to deal with this. And I knew Meryl Streep was going to be great. But, like, I mean, that was kind of, as Colin said, a beginning, middle, and an end. And what season two has done is kind of taken that and expanded it. And it's mothers not only reacting to the violence that they have perpetuated, but the violence of others' mothers. There's a scene in, uh, I believe it's episode two, where Celeste pushes one of her boys in a very mm-hmm. aggressive way and then has to confront that reality of the violence that she's done. Well, she also slaps Meryl Streep's character. Sla- well, that was great. That and asked for. amazing. Um, <laughs> Bonnie's mother is introduced, and Bonnie's mother is another character that we kind of have been given clues to has perpetuated some violence against her own child. Mm-hmm. And I think- But I want to go back to what you just said, because that. She asked for it is the rationale, right? That she, the Meryl Streep character is ratcheting up. She's pushing the buttons uh, of Nicole Kidman. But our understanding of violence between people is nobody really asks for it. I think in that specific case, Mary Louise knew exactly what she was doing because she's trying to build evidence. She wants to get hit. To the fact that Celeste is an unfit mother. She's trying to build a case against Celeste. Mm. So she is But Mary Louise also fully believes that Jane was asking for it in her, you know, I don't want to get into too much of a spoiler territory here, but she is a perpetuator of that, you know, terrible victim blaming, victim mm-hmm. blaming. Yeah. So I think that that was very clever of Mary Louise to do to kind of play into that and also know that that's how Celeste is going to react. And she's got that great line after what do you call that foreplay, which right. was just magnificent Meryl yeah. Streep acting and, and great writing, too. I think. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this part of the series is getting into and poking 
at, the way a tongue pokes at a sore tooth, something that I, I have rarely seen, Teresa, which is in, in this part of this second uh, season of this series, um, one of the things that has sort of come out that was there in the first series, too, is that this uh, horrifically abused woman, played by Nicole Kidman, who's just mm-hmm. doing the acting of her life in this, too, and whatever reservations I have about this series, I mean, a lot of these people are giving these stellar performances, and Kidman is just kind of unbelievable. Um, but one of the things that she's acknowledged is that part of she and her husband had a kind of hot sexuality that was fueled by this violence, that sometimes the Mm -hmm. violence was just violence. Sometimes it turned into very powerful and intense sex. Um, There's a moment uh, in, I think, the most recent episode where she and Shailene Woodley's character, who has been raped by the same man, uh, Shailene Woodley asked, did he ever rape you? And she deflects the question because we all know what the answer is. No, they had on, on a very horrifying way, a a rather intense sex life that didn't involve rape. Um, And to me, I don't think I've ever seen a series deal as riskily with that. I mean, Teresa, I feel like there's an area where they're they're out on a limb. You know, I I think they're talking about something that's very real, but in a way that I haven't seen before. Oh, I, I mean, I definitely agree. And I think part of the reason they're able to do that is this is a production almost entirely of women. You know, it was started by Reese Witherspoon and I think Nicole Kidman, they they got the rights to the book. They wanted to turn this into a series. The cast is almost entirely women. The few men are, you know, almost there as jokes half the time. They are literally in, all in, jokes. In, except when they're villains. Yeah. Yeah. And um and I think for us as the podcast, that's part of why we're so interested in the show is because it's dealing with women's issues in general, not just the abuse and the weird sexual relationship that Celeste has with uh, with Perry, but women's issues in general in a way that most TV shows don't. Yeah. Um, could you just say a little bit about doing the podcast? Uh, I mean, first of all, I keep saying The Nose had a baby because all of you kind of <laughs> met each other here on The Nose, and two of you, I think, were on the episode that we did about Big Little Eyes back in mm-hmm. uh, 2017. But, um, well, first of all, I mean, Rebecca, what kind of I, – I already know this from the elevator trip up, but you do get some feedback from fans and stuff yeah, like that, Yeah, that's right? been really interesting. We've definitely started kind of culling a little group of uh, – a band of loyal listeners, and then we're – you know, we've had some interesting interactions with some of the stars. We've gotten – I think all of the child actors now follow us. And really? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah, they were easier to get, though. They're yeah. trying to still build up their clout. And then uh, Jeffrey Nordling, who plays Gordon, has been a good supporter of what we've got going on. The HBO account has been quite supportive. So that's been really fun to see and kind of surreal and strange. Mm-hmm. Um, interacting with strangers on the Internet is not something – I'm a very bad millennial when it comes to that. But it's been kind <laughs> of an interesting you know, way to get into that. But, I mean, this is really the brainchild of – Teresa and Carolyn, I was I was roped in. <laughs> yeah, well, ter- Teresa, maybe first of all, mm-hmm. just for people who, and and it's a little bit complicated because there is something else called the Big Little Podcast. So you have to make sure you get the right one. But so, yeah. uh, tell people how to find this first of all. Well, I think probably the easiest way is to go to our website, which is the Big Little the Big Little Podcast dot com. And then just follow the links to um, to iTunes or Stitcher or Podbean. Um, Podbean. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, because you do have this problem with this other big, big little podcast that doesn't seem to be putting out podcasts anymore. So okay. it's I, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, but it, it, it mm-hmm. has some kind of Google footprint that's um, exactly over. What were you going to say? Mm-hmm. 
Oh, and uh, just also, you know, follow us on social Socials. media. Uh, don't yell at us, though. <laughs> Um, all right, so we're going to take a break, so we'll have time to make some recommendations of things. But yes, uh, absolutely check out uh, the Big Little Podcast. Did you ever want it? All right, we're back. This is usually where Kion Wolf says all the thank yous, except Kion Wolf isn't here herself today to be thanked. Uh, Jonathan McNichol pretty much got the whole thing on the air. It usually takes a pit crew of three people to get our shows on the air, except when we do these uh, noses uh, at strange times or at times when people aren't around, in which case it only takes Jonathan. So Jonathan uh, McPants is, uh, is our producer, a creator, and everything else today. The part of Bill Curry was played by Adam Scott. And, uh, <laughs> no. So they think that's funny. Um, and then... Um, I should say, um, Jeff Cohn, who's our news director, reminds me so much of Adam Scott. Uh, every time I see one of them, I think of the other, which is an odd thing. Carolyn anyway. hates Adam Scott. I uh, hate them him. away from each yeah. other. <laughs> like even Parks and Rec, Adam Scott? You yeah. Hate all, all Adam Scott. All yeah. Adam yeah. Scott. The good yeah. place, Adam Scott? You yep. Hate all, he plays the uh, devil in the good place. Yeah, well. It's just his face. I don't know. All right. So anyway, and we'll be back on Monday with a scramble. I think Betsy Camp- Kaplan has some big Uber arching idea for the scramble, but I don't know what it is. And I don't see Betsy Campbell anywhere. Uh, Betsy Kaplan. Uh, Betsy Kaplan anywhere. So we'll figure that out. I'll figure out what Betsy's name is. I believe it's Kaplan. <laughs> and then I'll find out what the scramble's all about. Okay, so it's time to make some recommendations. We like to do that here. Uh, so why don't we start with you, Rebecca Castellani? Okay, so my first endorsement is kind of an overarching one, and that is just generally for the music of Big Little Lies. They've done such a lovely, lovely job scoring this show uh, Mixing throwback music with really current modern stuff. Michael Kiwanuka's Cold Little Heart has, you know, become an iconic part of the show, really a part of the show. But for me, the the biggest discovery from watching Big Little Lies musically was the work of Agnes Obel. She plays uh, the September song, which plays over the closing montage of season one. And just her stuff in general is really beautiful. It's mostly instrumental. It's good if you're, you know, writing and working. It's, it's lovely stuff to play in the background. So Agnes Obel, but in general, all of the music that you hear on Big Little Lies is pretty spectacular. And my second endorsement is a book I just finished this morning, um, My Brilliant Friend. I'm sure it's been endorsed on the show many times. It's by Elena Ferrante. It was just really one of the most powerful books I've read um, in recent memory. And the writing is just as good as it gets. It's almost like irritating how good the writing is. Yeah. And now they'll be able to use Google Analytics to figure out who she is. Oh, I don't um, want to know. I know. I know. There's a... Anyway, uh, so Carolyn, what have you got? All right. So uh, I have a love-hate relationships with podcasts. So it's funny that now I run Don't one. Don't admit that. Uh, I know. <laughs> but um, I got asked... To be fair, she has love-hate relationships with a lot of the things that she does. Every, so yeah, pretty true. much everything. <laughs> um, so I got asked to be on a guest, special guest on this podcast uh, called These Are Their Stories, which is a podcast about law and order, uh, like all the different law and order shows. And uh, so when I, I listened to a bunch of them, and I'm a huge fan of specifically law and order SBU. That's my like go-to couch binge I'll just like put it on in the background uh, and so this podcast is really fun and it looks at not only does it like you know go through the show from a really humorous humorous perspective but it also uh, looks at the actual crime that is ripped from the headlines um, so it's fun and fascinating so definitely check out uh, these are their stories these podcast their okay. um, and uh, also my silly endorsement if you're watching uh, Big Little Lies and like kind of looking for 
it's you know they loosely call it reality TV, but Real Housewives of New York just finished is finishing up its season and they have their reunion shows and everything. But if you're like looking for something to sit around and binge, it is really truly a fascinating cultural look at <laughs> women um and, and it really i mean it, it just is it, it is so absurd it makes the women in big little lies seem downright l- relatable like mm. it is it is great so if you're looking for just you know something to waste your brain cells on go go for some real housewives of new york right carolyn Payne's views are not necessarily the views of npr <laughs> um, <laughs> but but go ahead, go ahead, do that. Uh, so, uh, Teresa Kramer, what have you got for us? I've got two books. Um, one I listened to recently, and it was—it's been a bo- big book over the last year or so. It's "Where the Crawdads mm-hmm. Sing" by Delia Owens, and funnily enough, it's actually a Reese Witherspoon book club pick, which I kind of half expect means she'll be buying the rights to it and making a show or a movie out of it sometime soon. But it's really beautiful, and I'm living on a pond at the moment, and there, it's a lot about the wildlife in and around the the North Carolina setting, and I just – I really loved it. And it reminded me of Barbara Kingsolver, and what I love – part of what I love about her books is that she's a trained biologist, as I think Delia Owens is. And so um, a lot of her books really de- – dive deeply into the natural world around her and her latest book called unsheltered is what i'm reading now and it sort of takes place in two different time periods of upheaval including the 2016 election time period and then like i think it's the 1870s is when the when the other story is taking place and um there's a lot in there about the natural world and it it's a great summer read if you want to go outside and and enjoy and learn a little bit about the stuff around you. Right. Pond not included. Um, All right. So uh, as people have been able to hear from my voice, I had a sinus infection and strep for a few days. And I mean, I had to lie on the couch. At least that was my excuse uh, for lying on the couch and watching all manner of things. Uh, So I could I could sit here all day now and talk to you about uh, things good and bad. Uh, I'll mention some interesting uh, movies that I just hadn't been aware of uh, or barely aware of them. One of them is Juliet Naked, uh, which is another Nick Hornby adaptation. It's pretty much like all Nick Hornby adaptations. (laughs) So if you want if you really want to get away from that, don't watch this movie because he's doing a lot of this stuff. But I I feel like as a writer, he does that stuff very well. This one involves. Ethan Hawke and Rose Byrne uh, and Chris O'Dowd, uh, all three uh, terrific actors, I think, uh, playing out one of uh, Nick's. Uh, ro- so as rom for a rom com, particularly if you're like not really a sort of Knights of Rodanthe type rom com, <laughs> kissing in the rain kind of person, this is a pretty good one. Um, and then. Not a rom-com and such an implausible idea. And the person sitting next to me did not like this movie and kept demanding to know why it even existed and what was it about. The movie Colossal, uh, which uh, proceeds from the notion that a character played by Anne Hathaway, somebody with a drinking problem living, I think, in upstate New York, can control unwittingly this monstrous kaiju-type creature that emerges in Seoul, South Korea, periodically and kills and destroys people. Uh, Jason Sudeikis uh, plays kind what? of the uh, yes, what? It, you, and it and it is. Does this 
exists. It totally exists. <laughs> it is not a fever hallucination I had. Yes, it's called Colossal. Jason Sudeikis is the kind of the other major character uh, in it. Uh, I'm not going to. There's a little twist about that. I'm not going to say what it is. Uh, but um, it, it is either you're going to buy into it and stay with it the whole way, and it turns kind of serious at a certain point. Um, but or you're not. I I personally thought, well, this is one of the more original concepts for a movie that I've ever seen, uh, and I was perfectly happy to stay with it all the way. Uh, lastly, I'll say that the first episode of Years and Years has just dropped. This is, uh, you probably think of this as the Emma Thompson thing on HBO, except that Emma Thompson isn't that big a character in it so far. If it can sustain the kind of creativity and energy that it had in its first episode, we're going to be talking about this on a future episode of The Nose. Uh, if not, we'll forget about it. But it really was pretty amazing. Did you see the first episode? No, but I really want to. I want to watch that yeah. Really, yeah. what they do that, that episode anyway, just incredible. Well, Something excited. I hadn't really seen before. All right. Thanks to Teresa Kramer. Thanks to Carolyn Payne. Thanks to Rebecca Castellani and Mr. Big Pants. You'll be talking about that.